0: And let's come before the Lord in prayer for His Spirit's illuminating power. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we are about to open Your Word, we do so eagerly because we want to hear wonderful things. We want to see Jesus. We want to see how powerful is His love for us. We want to be moved and amazed. We want to be renewed in our convictions. We want to be convicted of all that He has done for us. We pray, Heavenly God and Father, that You would now remove distractions Remove the the garbage of our lives that so litter the way, so that Jesus Christ may enter in and dwell within. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah, chapter 12. Zechariah might seem like a difficult book to find. It's a minor prophet, not minor, of course, in significance, minor in terms of length. There are major prophets, minor prophets, just a reference to their length. Zechariah is a minor prophet, which means that he's a little shorter than Isaiah and all the rest. But if you get to Matthew, you know where Matthew is, and you go back a few pages, not many, because Zechariah is the second last book in our Old Testament. Malachi is the last one. And Malachi only has uh, four chapters. So it's a page and a half. You go back from Matthew a couple of pages, you get to Zechariah chapter 12 page 950 otherwise, 950, Zechariah 12, we're going to begin reading at verse 1, we'll read to chapter 13, verse 1, and we're reading this in light of what it is that we confess concerning the name of our Lord and Savior in Lord's Day 11. We're going to confess together that aspect of our Lord's ministry and identity that is His name, Jesus. To that end, we're going to see something prophetically This is Zechariah, the Lord, through Zechariah, pointing his people forward to the one who would come. And this is what we read. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. For the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the people with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a, over a firstborn. On that day, the morning of, in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, and the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day, there will be a fountain open for the house of David. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now you wonder, when the people of God first heard that and read that, how could they have managed to anticipate how wonderfully, powerfully, and significantly the Lord would fulfill that word in the birth of His Son? That's what we get to focus on. That's what we are blessed to be able to know as New Testament Christians. Lord's Day 11, page 212 in your Forms and Prayers books. We're going to confess together these two question and answers 29 and 30 we're going to confess the answers together and he is the one who fulfills this glorious prophecy of Zechariah 12 when it says that the house of David shall be like God like the angel of the Lord the angel of the Lord of course in the Old Testament is often the pre-incarnate Christ it's Jesus before he was Jesus and so that literally comes to pass even as we get to confess here. Lord's Day 11, question answer 29. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? Because He saves us from our sins and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. And do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Although they boast of being his, by their actions they deny the only Savior, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in him all they need for their salvation. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ our Lord, with the hymn writer of old, we do sing Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. That's a lot to say, isn't it? Life and health and peace. The name Jesus can accomplish all of those things, I'm guessing that if we have unbelieving co-workers, neighbors, people that we're interacting with, if we were to say to them, if they asked, how was your weekend? What did you do? And we all went to church. Well, what was church about? Well, it was the secret to life and health and peace. I think everybody would probably want to know the secret to life and health and peace. They would say, wait a minute, you you learned the secret to life and health and peace? I can hardly believe it. What's the secret then? Tell us. And then if you were to say, well, it's the name Jesus. Do you think that they would go, Oh, I get it. Yes, of course. Or do you think they'd say, wait a second. No, no, that's okay. This is one of these evangelism talks. This is you trying to convert me again. Thank you very much, but no. Uh, my life is pretty good and I don't have Jesus in it. Thank you. I, I'm okay and, and, and I, I don't need to know that name. I'm blessed without it. Thank you very much. I don't think that, that many people would instinctively and naturally accept or believe What we would sing about the name of Jesus. And and there's good reason for that. Good good reason that we can understand why that is. But it ought to impress upon us all the more just how blessed it is. Just how privileged we are. Just how gracious God is to those of us who know just, just how accurate those words are. That for those of us who genuinely can sing and say that Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows, to his music in, in our ears and life and health and peace, that those of us who can genuinely say that have been remarkably and wonderfully blessed by a God whose love is deeper than we'll ever know, wider than we can ever discover, whose grace is sufficient for all of us. That's what Lord's Day 11 wants to present to us. The wonder of knowing the name of Jesus. Our Savior's sufficient saving grace is what that name reveals. Even as we noted already this morning in the giving of that name by the angel of Jesus at His birth. That's not a minor incident, by the way. That's not a minor matter uh, you know how it is when parents are uh, expecting their first child. You know how difficult it is to come up with a name. And, and so maybe you would, you would like it if God would to descend in some way, send a postcard or whatever, say, this is the name you ought to give to this child of yours. We, we sweat over these things and want to get them right. And isn't it lovely that the angel comes and says to Joseph, oh, well, don't worry, the name's already picked out. You don't have to sweat over that. Jesus, that's his name, Joshua, of course, in the Hebrew But of course, it's more than that, isn't it? It's more than just the the identifying of this particular child in this particular family with a label that fits him. It is a revelation of God, God Himself declaring, This is what I say of this child. Joseph, here's what you ought to know. Mary, this is what you must see. World, ultimately, world, here is what you must understand. His name is Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. That's, of course, what the name means. Many Hebrew names are words put together so that they they mean something. They're almost a sentence. And Joshua is made up of two words, the word for the Lord, Yahweh, and the word for salvation. And so you have in the name Joshua, in the name Jesus, The saying, the statement, the Lord saves. When God came to Joseph, he said, Joseph, do not be afraid of this boy, for this boy will save you. This boy saves. And now there's, of course, in the history of the world, lots of people who will claim such a blessing and such a status, even as we'll see in a few moments, but... But consider how Jesus uniquely fulfills that identity as Joshua, as Jesus. Remember what we studied in Lord's Days 5 and 6 about how the Messiah, the only one who could save us, the only one who can satisfy the wrath of God against your sin and against my sin, the only one who can pay the debt for us that we owe because we sinned and perpetually sin, the only one who is able to make God happy so that we never need be afraid. So that we know that either when Jesus returns, He'll welcome us into His fellowship, or if we die, which is more likely, if we die, we will be welcomed into eternity, into fellowship with God. The only way we can know those things and experience those things is because of who that Messiah is. Perfectly human, perfectly righteous, and divine. You'll remember, Lord's Days 5 and 6 explain to us why it is that that is the cave. Well, that's exactly who this child of Mary claims to be. Conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. Do not be afraid, Joseph, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. God Himself reminding us, telling us, this is a miracle child. The miracle child. And indeed, Jesus' life and ministry, pair that out. Think of all of His miracles. Think about all that He accomplished. Think about how John the Baptist at one point, even John the Baptist was a bit uncertain. Sometimes we can be a bit uncertain. Is Jesus really the Messiah or not? Have we put our trust in the right one or not? John the Baptist had the same question. So you're in good company. John was in prison and he sent word by his disciples to Jesus says, Are you the one who's to come or should we look for another? Keep in mind, John the Baptist is the one who baptized Jesus, who said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, the one whose sandals I'm not worthy of untying. He says, Now, are you the one to come, or should we look for another? What does Jesus then say? He says this, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Think about, think about, for that matter, why John the Baptist, or sorry, the Apostle John, the Apostle John he gave to us a book uh, with uh, seven miracles uh, in it. Uh, there are certainly more miracles than that, but John records seven miracles. And he does say in chapter 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in His name. Jesus' message, Jesus' ministry, testify, say John, say Matthew, say Mark and Luke, say the Apostle Paul, say so many passages of Scripture, they testify that He is indeed the Son of God. And we're not just saying that. We're not the only ones who thought that. The people of Jesus' day thought that. Remember why it is that Jesus is crucified. Jesus is crucified, obviously theologically, because we need a Savior who dies under the curse of God's wrath for our sins. Just think of all of those Old Testament passages that, that teach us the need for such a thing a spotless lamb, one who is cursed, and hang, is, is, or uh, anyone who hangs from a tree is cursed, says the Lord. Think of Psalm 22. We had looked at that through the, uh, uh, the Lenten season. But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That whole psalm is one long description of Jesus' suffering as he goes to the cross for us. The Old Testament is full of prophecies concerning how the Messiah must hang upon the cross, must die in order to satisfy the wrath of God for our sins. But now, what is the mechanism? How does Jesus end up? How does this perfectly obedient Son of God end up on the cross of Calvary? Well, you remember, of course, all of that business about the trial and the Sanhedrin and all the rest. And what is the accusation they bring against him? He blasphemes. Tell us now, are you or are you not the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of the Jews? It is as you say, Jesus says. What else do we need? He blasphemes. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they killed Jesus. Because he claimed to be, because they knew he claimed to be the Son of God. And they said, You cannot be the Son of God. You may not be the Son of God. We will not accept you as the Messiah. We will not accept you as our Savior. And yet he died and rose again. Indeed, he rose again. His resurrection is also confirmation that he is exactly who he says he is. That his name, Jesus, is a true and accurate description of who He is. His resurrection, which was witnessed not just by a close group of men who really liked Jesus, the twelve or the eleven disciples who lived after His death, but also by 500 and more people who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Confirmed by their eyewitness accounts. Confirmed by the work and the ministry of those eyewitnesses following Jesus' ascension into heaven. All of which is to say life, Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus' death and resurrection, the ministry of the church following the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. All that we have in the Bible, all that we have in the history of redemption testifies to the truth of God's words when He says to Joseph through the angel, His name is Jesus, for He saves His people from their sins. And now let that truth for a moment just rest upon your heart. That you know the name of the One who has washed you, who by faith trust in Him, clean from all your sins. That when you say the name of Jesus, not as a swear word, not as a word to punctuate a sentence, as is the case in our world. When you say Jesus, because you know when you teach your children To pray in Jesus' name. When you, around the table at supper, talk about Jesus. Not perfectly. Not with perfect adoration and understanding. But knowing this, that He is the Savior who died for your sins. Then you may know in that moment, not because of anything you've done, because you know the name of Jesus. Because His name is precious to you. Because you know what it represents and what it means that your sins, those stupid sins, those repeated sins, those offensive sins, those ancient sins, those pesky sins, have been washed away in the blood of the Lamb. The name of Jesus The name of Jesus is the name that charms our fears. That bids our sorrows cease. It's music to the sinner's ears. It's life and health and peace. Now, not for everybody. I understand that. We live in a culture and in a society that certainly doesn't claim this. Indeed, the devil works very hard to ensure that we don't rest In the precious name of Jesus. He tells us, the world tells us, the culture tells us, well, Jesus, you understand, is really not very unique. I mean, these disciples, they just really took bits and pieces from different religions. He's really just an amalgam of other religious traditions. It's an argument you hear on university campuses, you hear in the culture generally, you hear on the internet, on Instagram and Facebook and all the rest. Jesus is not unique. No, no, he's just a a pastiche. He's just putting together a bit here, a bit there, this religion, that religion. We have Jesus. And if that doesn't convince you, then they say, well, you know, Jesus is really a polished up version of who, a a probably significant historical character in the first century, a, a Jew who was doing some really good stuff a politically active Jew, a Jew that was anti-empire, a Jew that was all sorts of things, you you know, a decent fella, let's not deny it, but but yeah, when he died, that kind of, you know, his followers were a bit disappointed by that. So they wanted to keep the, 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 the ministry going. They wanted to keep the process going. So what they did is they sat down together and they said, listen, Matthew, all right, here's what you're going to do. And Mark, why don't you do that? And Luke and John, here we go. Okay, let's, let's, let's write these things up and, and let's, let's, let's polish it a bit, right? Let's Let's expand, right? You remember he was at that wedding? Why don't we say that he turned that water into wine? Let's make that a story. And do and, and, and you remember that, 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 that man? He was really kind to that fellow that was blind. you remember that? He, he gave him some money. And that was, how about we make it he healed that blind guy? How about that? And so they polish up the name of Jesus, we're told, in order to turn Jesus into this glorious, heroic figure. But in the end, the historical, the real Jesus, if he actually existed, is nothing like the Jesus of our Bibles. There's even in the history of the Christian church a movement called the the Search for the Historical Jesus in which uh, academics and and very bright people would come together and they would work through the Bible uh, and they would say, well, you know, was that really what Jesus said? That probably isn't what Jesus said, isn't it? No. And so they would try and find what they believed was the historical Jesus reading through all the many layers and lies of the New Testament Christian church those are the voices that we live with you can find in this world challenges against our faith in Jesus on every corner so that in fact we can find it challenging maybe especially when we're younger we can find it challenging we've only ever been told by dad and mom that Jesus is the Messiah we heard it at church we heard it at school we heard it at kingdom seekers and cadets and then we go out into the big, wide world, and we meet other people, and we meet other ideas, and we meet contradictory thoughts and challenging words and suddenly we 're not sure anymore. We find it challenging in those moments to respond to those who who push back against what was a very comfortable faith. We lived with all of our family, our parents our chil- our sorry our cousins our, our friends, everybody went to church there was, no, there was no friction, there was no pushback, there was no challenge, and so Now, when we meet the challenge, we're not sure how to respond, which isn't very, by the way, new. It's the most ancient thing in the world. The world has always, the church has always been confronted with two voices. From the very beginning, there was a serpent in the garden. God had said to man, don't eat of that tree. I had given you a promise of life, God had said, but don't eat of that tree. And then the serpent said, Really? Really? You're gonna trust him? Really gonna trust him? You've got to understand that that really is at the heart of this question about who Jesus is, because it's not merely a question of what we can know scientifically or empirically. That's how so often our world wants to frame it. Can you know empirically, scientifically, that Jesus is who says is? Prove to us, please, that he is who he says he is. Well. That's a very challenging thing to do at any time. Can you prove that Winston Churchill existed? We all know Winston Churchill existed, right? Do we? Do we really? I mean, if they could fake the moon landing, landing. you you don't believe that the moon landing was real, do you? Do you not see how you can question things that are not 2,000 years old, that are 60, 70 years old? And how do you prove that Winston Churchill existed? Well, but, but look at these images. We've talked to flat earthers about images. I mean, how do you prove anything? In the end, don't you realize that it becomes a question not of your eyes and your ears and your hands and your senses, but it's a question of who do you trust? Who do you trust? Do you trust yourself, your own senses? Do you trust your parents? Do you trust the God who created heaven and earth what speaker do you believe one voice says to us this is the Messiah he is Jesus come to save you from your sins and then offers us a litany of evidences and proofs that demonstrate the truth of that word For generations and thousands of years, preparation had been made. There's coming this Messiah when he shows up and then does exactly what God had promised he would do. We are given all the evidence we need that God's word is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And then there comes this quiet, whispering, snaky word. He's not the Messiah. And then offers its proofs to demonstrate to us the truth of that word. And now what do you do? What do you do? You've got these two voices. On the one hand, I mean, in part, you ought to examine, of course, the proofs without question. Is Jesus just an amalgam of other spiritual figures? Do we have reason to doubt the eyewitness testimony of the early church? We ought to ask these questions. We shouldn't be afraid of them. There, There is good and reasonable answers to them. But the answer also requires that we listen to the competing solutions. Because if Jesus is not the Messiah, if he's not the answer to all of life's ills and problems, then what is? And there is going to be an offer. Somebody else is going to be called upon. We're going to have to follow some other messianic figure, some other idea, theology, philosophy, perspective. What proofs does that system provide? What does Buddhism provide to prove its claim? What does Islam provide to prove its claim? What does any religion provide to prove its claim? If we're going to subject Christianity to the standard to a particular standard, we must subject all religions to that standard. But ultimately, the answer requires our considering. Not just the proofs, and not just the competing solutions, but the one who is speaking to us. Who's speaking to us? Do they have integrity? Do they have faithfulness, honesty? Is there truth in their word? Do they keep their word? Do they accomplish for us what is necessary and then call us to trust it? Or do they tell us to trust it and then they will accomplish it for us? That's the way of this world. Trust me. Trust me. That's the way of our political leaders. That's the way of our academic leaders. That's the way of our philosophers. Trust me. Trust me. If you rewrite all of history, if you reconstruct all of society, if you just follow this plan, I promise it'll work out. On what basis do they make that promise? It's never worked out in the past. There were 70 years where they're trying to do this in Soviet Russia. It didn't work out then. Oh, but this time it'll be different. Trust me. Trust me. Why should I trust you? What have you done? i tell you why I trust the Lord. Not only because He created the heavens and the earth. Not only because He has guided and guarded His church through the long history of, of redemption so that the Israelite people uniquely in all of history enjoy a particular place. But because He gave His Son who died on the cross, rose again, ascended into heaven 2,000 years before I was born. He accomplished my salvation before I existed. He doesn't say, I'll do something for you if you trust me. He says, I've done something for you. Trust me. So that in the end, we must either posit a version of our own Messiah, and there is a multitude of possibilities available there, or we must trust the God who has revealed the Messiah to us. If we're going to trust the multitude of Messiahs that the world presents to us, you can trust one for a while and then cast it off and trust another for a while until a better option comes available. You can continue to walk in these ways, but in the end you'll have no peace, no comfort, no life, and no health. But if you trust in the Messiah revealed to us by God, if you take God at His word and say, I trust you, God, I have no reason not to, And you are to receive this Messiah as He is in all of His glory and grace, in all of His love and mercy. And you are to surrender your life to Him. Your life in its totality, as the catechism says. Because the catechism is not satisfied with just telling us who Jesus is. The catechism also says to us that we must trust Him and Him alone. The exclusive claim of the Christian faith that Jesus is the only one in whom we can find salvation, that you cannot add anything to Him and be saved, it has long been a contentious and challenging word to the churches from the very beginning. We studied the book of Galatians. That was at the heart of the Galatian challenge. Already so very early in the church's history, Christians were struggling with the exclusive claim of who Jesus is. That claim that is simple. For it is either Jesus's, it says that either Jesus' death and resurrection is enough to pay all of our debt and clothe us in His perfect righteousness, so that God sees us as though we'd never sinned or been sinners, as though we'd been as perfectly righteous as He was for us. Either that's true, or we need to supplement faith in Jesus with and now you can fill in the blanks. We get saints, good works, or saints and good works in uh, question and answer 30 but you could add all sorts of different possibilities to that list simply put the confession says it's all or nothing that if you are a Christian who believes in Jesus then you must also believe that Jesus is enough and that to have add, or to add anything to Jesus is folly that's the the challenge that is placed before us in question answer 30. That's a challenge that's placed before us in the Word of God. In Galatians 1, the verses 8 and 9. You remember those verses where Paul he had been accused of being a little too um, smooth, a little too salesman like. And so he says this. He says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. As we've said it before, so I say now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And accursed there means condemned eternally, damned, under the judgment of God, that sort of thing. And then he asks, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? But if I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And there Paul, Paul identifies that, that, What he elsewhere describes for us as the offense of the gospel. This exclusive claim that Jesus is enough, that our sins are forgiven, and that we can rest wholly and securely only in Jesus. We can let go of everything else and cling only to Him, knowing that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have all you need in order to live eternally, in order to escape death, in order to escape judgment. You have all you need in Jesus Christ. If you're convinced of that, then you are convinced of a truth that offends the natural man. That's why the the catechism raises the question in question answer 30. The catechism written in the time of the Reformation was dealing with this very question as well. The, The question of, is Jesus enough? And the Catholic Church said, no, He is not enough. You need to do stuff. And the Reformers came and said, but that's not what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God says, no added works. No prayers to saints. No anything else giving in the offering, the clink of the coin, causing a soul to escape into heaven. None of that. The Reformation was strong on this point that Jesus is all and in all. It's not just a historical challenge that we face. It is also a human challenge that we face. Because the reason why the church, whether it's in the days of the Galatians, in the days of the Reformation, or in the days that we live in right now, the human condition we all enjoy or suffer under is that it's easier to rest in something tangible, in something understandable, and something less terrifying, less demanding than in this Jesus who we meet on the pages of Scripture of whom God speaks to us by His Word. God calls us, not to close our eyes, don't misunderstand that, God calls us to open our eyes, to read the Word, to hear what He's saying, and to trust Him. To say, I don't don't see it. I don't touch it. I don't taste it. But I believe you. To believe God. And the truth is we're all a little like Thomas. Wanting to see, touch, and feel before we believe. We're all a little bit like Gideon wanting to put out the fleece. Or like Emperor Constantine with his vision in the sun. It's the most natural orientation of the human spirit. Look at every world religion. Look at your own natural fallen heart. That old man that dwells still with you. Who are you most likely to trust if not yourself? Are you going to trust your God's promises when it comes to raising your children? Or are you going to trust the program, the book that you read, the teacher you listen to on the podcast? Are you going to trust your own parenting skills? Oh no, I'm going to trust God's promises. Then why is it that when we see another family struggling, we say, well, if only they did it our way. Because we really actually believe our way is the way. Are you going to believe the Lord's will for your marriage, His word for your life, countercultural as it is, or are you going to manage your marriage in a way that you, well, you know, we got it figured out, thank you very much. Do you see your business, your daily labor, as a song of praise to the Lord, advancing His cause and His kingdom on this earth, or do they exist to pad your bank account? And when you face struggles, is there no part of you that thinks, I don't deserve this? Is that not just the echo of works righteousness in our hearts? Is that not just our pride? So impossible to slay proof that we, by nature, say that we trust in God. But don't think we're all that bad either. Now, the natural man, the old man, the sinful man, is not really quite ready to give in everything to God yet. Instead, we are more inclined to trust ourselves, to trust our coming to church, to trust our giving in the offering, to trust our good works, to trust our ability. That's why we get proud. That's why we get boastful. That's why we think we're decent people. That's why when we look at the world around us and we see the people struggling in sin, we think, well, if only they were like us. But the truth is, There, but for the grace of God, go every single one of us. Because if you truly believe that it's up to you, then consider what the Word of God requires of you. If you really think you're good enough, then study what the Word of God says you must be. Because the Word of God says if you're going to believe that, if you're going to believe you're something decent then you have to be perfect in every respect, in every thought, word, deed, every act you do, every act you don't do, every attitude you have, orientation. It must be utterly and perfectly without spot or blemish. It must be so utterly devoted to God that there is no flaw. And if you think you're a decent person, you also need to satisfy the wrath of God against your sin. Your debt must be paid, which must mean you have to pay An eternal death. And even if you allow that Jesus, if you believe that Jesus is a valuable asset to your life, a good teacher, a good speaker, a good moral coach, you need to do everything in such a way that God's righteousness is satisfied. How are you doing at that? You a good person still? You still decent? Still think you're all right? Why not turn away from our pride? Why not turn away from our selfishness? Why not turn away from our self-righteousness and turn to Jesus? Study for a moment his life. Look at his death. Meditate on his ongoing ministry. Where is the flaw? Where did he ever err? Where is the missed ministry opportunity, the insufficient word or grace? Where in all the revelation of his love do you find any imperfection? Where in his sacrifice for the dead of sins is payment not rendered? Where does he leave the matter unfinished, unresolved? Look at yourself in the mirror. And you will see lots of reasons to doubt yourself. Which is why the devil wants you to trust yourself. Because he knows you can't hold up to it. Look in the mirror and see how little you can trust yourself. Then take a moment and look at the cross of Calvary. And see how much you can trust your Savior. Oh, in the end. In the end, I haven't the courage, and I hope you don't either. To trust yourself. Not that we're perfect at this. Not that even in our faith we're good at this. In our faith, even in our faith we're miserable. Even in my faith, I have this unfortunate tendency to rely far more on my own abilities than upon Jesus Christ. That old nature remains in me. I have to fight against it daily. But I know within the depths of my being, I know in that new man, in that new creation, that born-again self, the work of the Holy Spirit within, I know as... Certainly, as His name is Jesus, that He alone is able to save and has saved to the uttermost. And therefore, I will not relinquish any part of my faith in Him, even though the world will rage against it. The world's wrath is coming, will come, does come, has always come. The devil, the world, and our own flesh are endlessly trying to push us off of our confidence in Jesus Christ. But the world's wrath, even at its fiercest, is nothing compared to the judgment of God for those who sin. So I'll find my rest in Jesus and my righteousness in Him. Instead of resting in the world's self-esteem and its promises that tell me I'm great and that everything will be fine but do nothing in the end to satisfy the judgment of God. Do nothing in the end to solve the problem of my sin. No, I will believe in Jesus. And indeed, in that simple act of surrendering to Christ, we experience afresh and anew the power of our Lord's saving work. Because to know Jesus, to know who Jesus is and will always be, to know that He's enough and to know that your life is secure in Him, to trust wholly in Him is a gift of grace. It's not something we do naturally. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in us. And therefore we ought to put to death that self-righteousness and pride that tends to rely upon our own skills, our own gifts, our own wisdom, our own strength. That thinks that we can handle life all by itself. That takes those MoSimo t-shirts that say no fear on them and wears them into this world unironically. And we ought to fear. And we ought to recognize that in the end, I'm not enough, but He is. Put to death your self-righteousness and your pride and renew your trust in Him. Find your rest in Him. In Jesus. Jesus is whose name charms our fears and bids our sorrows cease. Whose name is music in the sinner's ears and is life and health and peace. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You that You've made known to us the name of Jesus. Although that name confronts us with a great challenge. will we believe. We can be cynical, Lord. We can be self-righteous, Lord. We can say, I can do it on my own. Thank you very much. I do not need Jesus. Not knowing that on our own means being perfectly righteous. Satisfying your debt against sin. Lord, we thank You that You have made known to us the name Jesus. That we may trust in Him. That we may surrender Him. We don't do it well, Lord. We know that. We admit that. We grieve that. We are far more more self-righteous and proud than we ought to be. We let the old man out far too often. Help us to put him to death. And help us to bring to life that new man. Whereby we surrender each day more and more to the saving work of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.